Welcome to Nightlight. What's the greatest need that we face in this present time? When that question was posed during the 1970s, when I was a young, confused, struggling college student, the response then was not a, a lot different than it is today. The government is a mess. We face a crisis in the Middle East, abortion and sexuality, huge battlefields. All those issues and more still face us. Yes, they have grown in size and increased in confusion, but still, in essence, they remain mostly the same as they were then. To try to answer the question of what is the greatest need in our time, what is the greatest need we face individually, I can only refer to what I see in my own heart and in the lives of those directly in front of me. I look back at messages I have offered in the past that seek to address the larger issues, the, the big, heavy-duty ones, like I just mentioned. And I always wonder if they were of any real help to anyone. Even if they did speak some truth or give some insight, uh, did it really lead the listener towards a greater position of strength and wisdom. So with all the noise and rancor still raging outside our door, what is most vital for you and me inside the door? What will matter most after this or the current news headline has passed? I believe we need to ask what the most important issue is that's on God's heart for us as his children. I can only offer my own small contribution to that otherwise huge question. All I can say is that back when I was a struggling college student, afraid of the growing craziness of the outside world, I did not know how to let God come deeply into my inside world. And it is letting God deeply into our inner core that I believe is the most important issue facing all of us now and tomorrow and on the way home till the end. To illustrate, think of a burning forest fire. From, from one point of view, the most important thing is to get the fire out. That's the big picture. But from the private point of view, the most important thing for the individual firefighter is to stay alive. Our world is on fire, and I'm not referring to the obvious huge headline issues. I'm much more concerned with the destructive flames burning up homes, families, relationships, and individuals. Selfishness and insane strife seems to be on every hand. I deal with it in some form or other almost every day. Thankfully, not in my own family, but in so many others. And of course, my own world is not totally immune. Now, it was very popular in those early college days of the 1970s when I was a very young and poorly trained believer to make claims that sounded like this. You would hear people quote, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, that's scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, to lay claim to that scripture makes perfectly good sense. And one of the reasons this confession became so widely circulated was to counter what had been for far too long an overemphasis on our sinful condition in most of the churches of my world at that time, every Sunday sermon was an appeal to come forward and repent of sin. And there's nothing wrong with that if it is timely and if it is addressing an awakened need that the Holy Spirit is energizing. But it had become so repeated that it was no longer effective. It was just wrote, fell on deaf ears. And it produced in many 
a sin consciousness, which the book of Hebrews in chapters 9 and 10 tells us we're not to live in. We're not to, we're to go, go free from a, that kind of sin consciousness. And it ended up becoming an excuse to just go on living in sin. Uh, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace was the other mantra. A common excuse for never changing, staying like we always were. When a better understanding of what it means to be in Christ was awakened by the move of the Holy Spirit and the renewal movement of that time, this old mistaken notion was gladly replaced by the more scriptural confession that I already quoted. I am not just an old sinner saved by grace. I was an old sinner. I got saved by grace. Now I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Yeah, that's better. But still we had a problem. It wasn't long before that too became an over-repeated, misunderstood mantra that had no effect on real living. We, we, did, we did the best we could, I guess, at the time, but nobody, nobody took it seriously and nobody changed. What is righteousness anyway? Well, that's a huge subject and we'll address it more in days to come, I hope. But, but from, a, from a legalistic background of righteousness, consciousness, what that meant for, for, for the legalist was that there's certain behaviors which we do not do. And each group had their own list of what those sins were, by the way. They all had different th- things on each, each list. But for others, like me, it came to mean righteousness was a legal position. Something we own because we are believers in Jesus. We were taught that we were legally placed in Christ when we came to him and we became righteous with his righteousness. That's the way it was said. Well, the truth is that both of these partial ideas have merit. Righteousness does involve behavior, and that behavior does involve things we no longer do. Righteousness is also a gift of grace that positions us in relation to God in a, in a legal way, so to speak. But neither of these concepts is complete in themselves. So it soon became true in the minds of many, I am the righteousness of God devolved into a license to just remain in old patterns of sinful behavior and claim your position in Christ. It ended up being a passive attitude towards sin. Then the antidote, which was no antidote, would be a swinging of the pendulum back in in the total opposite direction with a restating of the laws of righteousness which your particular group demanded that you maintain. You might be positionally in Christ, but you still better keep our rules. Now, I may not have ever said it out loud, But inside, I was increasingly aware that I used this idea of righteousness myself as a hiding place from the fact of ongoing sin in my private life. I'm referring now to the positional point of view, not the legalistic point of view. Many of you know the story of my early sexual brokenness and its ongoing damage in and through me for years beyond my coming to Christ. I sought help where I believed it might be offered, but in between one self-imposed crisis after another, I often gave in to my own sinful desires as a little voice inside would comfort me with a quote of Scripture. Don't worry, God understands. You're the righteousness of God in Christ. Your position is in Christ, so grace will cover your ongoing sin. With this, the voice of the devil would speak, or was it just the voice of my flesh? Well, they often parrot each other, so it doesn't really matter how you label it. It is for certain it was not the voice of the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer said on several occasions that he was increasingly concerned 
and this would have been back in the 50s and 60s, he was increasingly concerned about the danger of a misunderstanding of the concept of positional righteousness. Not because it was untrue, but because it was incomplete. I lived many years in defeat and shameful failure because I embraced only half the truth, and half-truths often bear the fruit of complete lies. The Holy Spirit was kind and loving and persistent in bringing me into deep, heart-wrenching confrontations with my sin. He didn't create my little hells. I did that all by myself. I recall one terrible night in Houston, Texas, for instance, where after I had tried to make life and happiness occur on my terms, I lay under a street lamp in a deserted park and screamed up at God, how could you possibly love me and let this happen to me? But most certainly it was his love at work in every detail of that pain. My position in the spiritual realm was in Christ. My position under the street lamp was also in Christ, but much less wonderful and pretty scary if you saw me. Jesus came to save me from my sins, not in my sins, or not for ongoing sin. So positionally, I'm his, yes. My behavior will not cause him to love me more if it's good, and it will not cause me him to love me less if it's bad. That is true. People who bristle at that truth are legalists. But as Oswald Chambers has said, there's no heaven with a little corner of hell in it. God is determined to make you holy and pure and right. He will not allow you to escape for one moment from the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit. And as has been said in many different ways by older and wiser heads than mine, there is no hell God will spare us for being put through in order to burn out the hell we still choose to embrace within us. God means to have us pure. Not pure as what some call a legal fiction. That's the term used by those who put all their emphasis on positional righteousness. But transformed into the very image and likeness of Jesus. During those early Jesus movement days of my spiritual boyhood, we really thought this. Jesus saves us from our sins. He covers us with his grace. We still sin, and we may even still sin a lot, but that's all okay because we are positionally, legally righteous, and when we die, whatever is still messed up in us will automatically be wiped away, and we will zoom into heaven perfect. And I'm not saying there's not a lot of truth mixed in that you can find somewhere if you really fish around for it. But here are a few scriptures that you will have to reckon with. Philippians 1, six. he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. James 1.22, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Hebrews 3.12, beware that you don't have a wicked heart that turns away from the living God. That's just a few scriptures of many, many we could look at that don't support the idea of being just an old sinner saved by grace on the one hand, or of legal fiction positional righteousness on the other. No, these verses, as well as many others, all point to an instant placing of us in Christ and an ongoing cleansing, healing, maturing work in us that will eventually carry us beyond death because there will be a judgment, a setting right of whatever is not put right. A judgment is coming for all of us for anything not right in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Romans chapter 14, uh, just to name a few verses. What does it mean then to be the righteousness of God? Well, 
That's a big subject, and we'll probably have to examine it in more than just this session. I'm just using this as an introductory uh, way of, of awakening us to what I believe is the most important question for all of us right now in our current spiritual war, culturally and probably privately. Rather than saying we're all sinners saved by grace or we are positionally the righteousness of God, it's much better to say God loves me just as I am, but he loves me too much to leave me like I am. And that became the new quotation for a generation that was no longer buying into the old sinner saved by grace stuff and was also becoming very weary with the taking of the position of uh legal fiction. You know why? Because we were having to live with ourselves and we were having to live with all kinds of difficulties in in our character and in our relationships. And we we began to realize there was something missing in our understanding of salvation. Not that we weren't saved, but what is salvation? It's much larger than just getting right so you can go to heaven when you die. God loves me just as I am, and he loves me too much to leave me like I am. We all quoted that, still do, but it took some deep dredge work, which is still going on in all of us, I'm sure, to help us move from the shallow misquotes about being the righteousness of God and all that into the fuller, better place of being secure in his love while longing to become like him also. So why was I afraid of this truth? Because uh, I'll tell you why I was afraid of it. I had tried to look inside myself on my own. Looking inside on your own is terrifying. If you really see what's in there, it's life-destroying, terrifying. John 1 says, Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace had to come before truth, or we would want to kill ourselves. And I'm not speaking hyperbolically when I say that. I had tried to change on my own. I had made all kinds of promises I had failed to be able to perform. I wanted to fix the obvious mess in me without allowing God to take me deep into the core issues of my heart. Now notice God taking me deep, not me going deep on my own. I'm not talking about morbid introspection, trying to fix myself. I'm talking about Isaiah 1, 18. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow if you come there with me. So it was much easier for me to take refuge in positional righteousness in those early days. But God was not trying to get me to embrace either my position in Christ or to work harder to change. He was drawing me into a place of intimacy with him where he and I became more and more of one heart. I could not begin to know where to start. I I wouldn't have known how to begin. Only he knew, and he would not force me into it, but he would lead me into it. By leading without forcing, he kept my freedom intact because he does not want us to become robots, yet his sovereign wisdom knows how to bring us to the end of our selfish, rebellious wills. He would allow the terrible trouble brought on by my own sinful choices as well as the brokenness of others around me. Yeah, he he used them too to bring me to the place of crying out for him with desperate honesty. I said we don't have a clue where to begin. Again, Oswald Chambers addresses this well when he says the great mystical work of the Holy Spirit is in the dim regions of our personality which we cannot get at. I cannot reach to the heights or down into the depths of me. 
There are motives in me I cannot trace, dreams I cannot get at. My God, search me out. If God can search us out only on our conscious levels, then God have mercy on us because there's vast depths of ocean of untapped, unexplored mystery inside of us. The person who has been made dull by sin will always say he has no consciousness of sin. A sin consciousness, that's the end of the quote, by the way. A sin consciousness is one which is introspective but shallow and legalistic. It's trying to watch itself to make sure it keeps all the rules. A sin consciousness is never deeply aware enough of the true depth of sin. A person who has seen himself in their true condition never again tells God how sinful he is. They know it's broken beyond the saying of the fact. No sense in saying it. There's no words to express how bad it is. Such a person has given up trying to be good cosmetically or religiously. No, such a person who has seen the depth of his sin by the grace of God revealing it, they just collapse before the cross. It would be great if we could do that in response to a sermon. We can, to some introductory degree, do that. But the truth is there's a deep root in us of self-will that can cry on the surface but rebel deep inside. And we're not even aware of it or how to get at it if we became aware of it. This work has to be done for us, in us, by the Holy Spirit. This is the real work of grace. It's now popular for many folks to focus on grace. And who can blame them? What might be wrong with them focusing on grace? There's no hope apart from God's grace. His grace is his loving, saving, transforming power, freely given to us with no strings attached. Of course, focus on it. But just like in my early days, when being, quote, the righteousness of God degenerated into false, powerless ideas, so the idea of grace as being only God's covering of our sin can also degenerate. Paul says in Titus 2, not that grace covers us, but that grace teaches us. What does grace teach us? To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now for the legalist who reads that, they expect you to be able to do that all in one swoop. And the only way they can convince themselves they have succeeded in doing it is to live in total denial of the depth of the sin that's still lurking inside them. So they are shallow legalists, keeping rules. I can tell you, after 40 years of struggling with Clay McLean, the Holy Spirit comes to teach us and it is an ongoing work of teaching to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly and righteously. Have you ever been trying to check out at a grocery counter? And you don't have to be male to struggle with this. Women, women are now uh, facing some of the same struggles with uh, roving eyes and images uh, in my magazines and right there at the grocery counter. Uh, it's unbelievable, the, the stuff that's shoved in your face in so-called family uh, business areas. And if you, if, you don't, if you can't relate to that, you just, you're just not being honest. Or you don't go anywhere. Now, if we did not have a secure position in our relationship with God, one that is totally made secure by His love, and, and uh, a security that keeps us forever safe, in his care, we could never begin this journey on our own. So he's able to give us the grace to begin facing what is deep within us that is harming us and that's harming others through us and that needs to come up in his light to be healed. 
we don't see that as grace usually. We may think he's abandoned us or that he's killing us. He knows we cannot even see what we need, much less reach and correct it. And he knows we cannot face it all at one time. We must grow into being able to more and more see what's wrong and ask him into it. And he even has to show us that. So he brings us into conflicts which make us face ourselves and face the truth we have been either ignoring or willfully refusing to see. This may take days or it may take decades, but he's patient. Romans 8.17 says we are fellow heirs with Christ. That's positionally true. If indeed still we suffer with him, so that we might be glorified with him. Philippians 3.10 My longing, Paul says, is to know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformed to his death. 1 Peter 5.10 After you've suffered a while, the God of all grace will, who called you by his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What is this suffering with Christ? Well, it takes on many forms, but one of them is the daily struggle with our own unfinished sinful struggles and character flaws. See, it's not just suffering that does it. It's suffering with a purifying element that, that, that makes the difference. It's not suffering on our own. It's suffering joined with him. And it's a huge source of help to know that in your suffering he is joined to you if you ask him to be. It's usually our own self-imposed suffering brought on by the very part of us that is in need of being cleansed and healed. Did you get that? It's usually our own self-imposed suffering that is brought on by the very part of us that we most need to be healed and cleansed of, that brings us to our low point, which then turns out is moving us to our high point, which is the moment of honesty before him when we cry out for his transforming grace. Paul Bellheimer wrote a book many years ago called Don't Waste Your Sorrows. That's not a book I fully can recommend because I believe in healing. I believe in miracles. I believe in restoration of the body. Uh, but with all due respect to that message, there's just too many people I know who have battled and battled and battled for such healing and didn't receive it. The reasons for that are, are too much to address here, and it's not our purpose to address it. But with all that being said, when I read Paul Bellheimer's book 30-plus years ago, uh, I, was not, I wasn't mature enough to hear what he was saying. I totally get it now. He says, quote, We usually think of afflictions that Paul says are working for us an eternal weight of glory as only those in the category of severe persecutions or even martyrdom. Some of us may yet be called to that kind of suffering. But at this point, the adversity for us is more physical or financial or most of all, sadly, relational. Is this what he meant when he said, if we suffer, we also shall reign with him? Maybe it is not always the character of the affliction that determines its value, but rather the length of its continuation and how we react to it. Whether our suffering is for Christ may be determined not so much by its nature and severity as by the quality of our spirit in which we face the suffering. The things you have long suffered in the daily grind of life may provide the opportunity to develop martyr strength and a deep dimension of love as truly as severe persecution 
for Christ's sake might produce. All affliction is intended to drive us toward God to work a fuller submission, a greater devotion, increased patience, beauty of spirit, selfless love for both God and man. When such is being accomplished in us, then we are suffering with Christ, which means for his sake, because it is allowing him to have greater access to our true heart. It may take a lifetime. But when suffering of any degree is allowed to work in us a deeper dimension of love, this surely is the suffering of Christ. As I read this quote, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering in every way possible in the Middle East and other parts of the world. I want to be very careful not to dishonor their heroism. I'm very aware we could all learn from them, and maybe before this is over, we will be learning from them. But with that kept keenly in mind, please listen to the remaining quote. Because if you remember, my opening question was this. What is the greatest need we are facing in this present hour? I believe it is for God's people to learn to endure whatever we face and wherever we are without wasting our sorrows. It is the willingness to suffer hardship, whether physical or emotional, but yoked with him that makes the difference in whether our suffering is just suffering or whether it is supernatural, empowered, Christ-suffering that can redeem us and the world. There is real heroism in patient plodding. Many think that a life ended swiftly by an act of martyrdom may be more heroic and a greater testimony of deathless love than a long life of faithfulness in the ordinary trials and tribulations of daily life. But may it be true that God is obtaining a similar quality of selfless devotion and sacrificial love through patient endurance of routine, daily, mundane sorrow, suffering, disappointments, heartaches, and pain that he permits as part of his loving child training, then those who suffer triumphantly, accepting the thing that hurt, the things that mar, and doing so with submission to Jesus in it, not to submission to evil, but submission to Jesus in thanksgiving and praise, turning We're turning straw into gold when we do this. Learning a quality of love that is preparing us for rulership in the world to come. But yielding to self-pity, depression, and rebellion is a waste of sorrow. Those who have unsuccessfully sought healing, then who gave in to resentment, discontent, impatience, and bitterness against God are wasting what God would turn for growth in them, growth in love. But the question is often asked, why can't God just do it in me? How many times did I cry out that question? Why can't you just change me? How many times have I been asked that by angry people, quite often angry people? Why didn't he change me when I asked him to? My answer to them was his answer to me. He will change you when you truly want to change. And if you think they were angry before I said that, you ought to see them after I said it. I remember saying to the Lord, just like this, it sounds to me like you're telling me, God, that if I will just behave, then you will change me. But if I could behave, I wouldn't need to change. He eventually taught me the answer to that riddle. He's not playing games. He's not being mean, and he's certainly not legalistic. He is delivering us from sin while at the same time protecting our true self 
which he deeply loves. Now let me explain what I mean by this. We think when we are crying out for God to change us, that that means he should zap us. I think you know what I mean by zapping us. That God should supernaturally transform our wrong desires and he should magically change them into godly desires. While we still go on with our bad desires, he should interrupt our ongoing focus on bad desires and just step in and magically change us whether we are present to the change or not. In other words, why can't he just make us reprogrammed robots? But it is not possible for God to do that. There's lots of things God can't do. God can't lie. God can't fail. God uh, can't make a square circle. God can't answer stupid questions of nonsensical uh, foundation. And he also can't change us by zapping us and still maintain us in our true self. He can't do it. He can change your desire, but he cannot change your desire without changing you. The only way he can change you without losing you is to take you through the fires of living that are usually stoked by your wrong choices coming from your wrong desires and use the very fiery trials created by our wrong behavior to then give us the grace to begin to make new choices because the fire awakens in us the obvious clarity of what we're doing as evil and what we long for as good. And only when that is where we cry out to him from is there any real interaction between us and God. Otherwise, it's just shallow complaining. It is his grace, but they are your choices. It is his grace that makes this all happen, but they are your choices. Only in this way is he able to answer your cry to change you. For his goal and predestined purpose for you is to transform you into his own image and likeness without losing your identity, whom he deeply loves. So he seems to be unloving, even ruthlessly indifferent to our sorrow. But he's the very opposite of indifferent. He's very near to one who has a broken heart. Not merely out of sympathy, but far better than sympathy. He is near to our broken heart because he is watching over it in order to transform it, in order to fill it with eventual joy unspeakable that will never be lost. We think our outer shell is our true self when it is only a shallow, dishonest shell of what we really are. It is this breaking of the outer shell of ego and image, that image which we coddle and protect with so much care. It is the shattering of this shell that must occur in order for the hidden treasure of our true heart to be reached by transforming grace. Positional righteousness is a wonderful truth that means we are positionally what he is going to make us for real. What a thought. When the outer breaking of your fleshly shell is complete, you will truly want to change and then he will do it. But there's a long distance from what you say you want and what you really want. And the Lord says, I will not make you behave like a toy doll. I want sons and daughters, not robots. Now, here's just a for instance. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14, we all can quote it probably. There's no temptation taken you, no matter, this is the amplified version, by the way. There's no temptation taken you, 
no matter how it comes or where it leads, that is not common to all human beings. There is no temptation that's beyond resistance. But God is faithful to his word and to his compassionate nature. And he can be trusted not to let you be tempted beyond your power to endure, but will with the temptation provide the way out. Therefore, shun all idolatry. I knew that verse. I knew I could quote that verse. I did not believe that verse. I was a believer in Jesus, yes. I was walking in positional righteousness, oh yes. Only after the outer shell of our shallow false self is broken through trials do we come to really believe this verse. I didn't believe this verse. God had to take me through many breakings before my true core cried out for reality. And it's still happening in my life. God is still breaking the outer shell of certain egotisms and posturings and uh, self-glorifying positions and areas of fake uh, posturing. He's still going after it because you know why? He who has begun a good work in me will finish it. And it's taking evidently a long time to finish it because there's a lot to do. We can measure how much we do or do not believe this verse by how often we give in to whatever temptation takes us. Now God's not put off by that. He just patiently continues to deal with us in that area until we become more desperate for him than we are to stay where we are. So I believe our current greatest need in this hour in individual Christian lives is to learn to embrace our sorrows, not as the final state we're to settle for, but as the necessary road we must travel on our way to full and final victory. How we respond to our pain along the way is determining if we are producing wood, hay, and stubble or if we're turning straw into gold. This is the great need of mature believers What's the great need of less mature believers? The same one. Same exact thing. There's a plague of mental illness among teenage and young adult people. It's mostly rooted in an overindulged materialism. They do not know the joy of hard work, the empathy of shared sorrow, the triumph of overcoming difficulty, or the soul-transforming process of putting off gratification. They don't know anything about it. They speak of wanting to commit suicide, literally, because they know nothing of the realities of life and death. So they throw words around like suicide or the idea of suicide. They play with it as if it's a toy. They're easily crushed by any opinion they do not share and cannot even consider listening to another person's point of view. It causes them mental distress. It's no wonder they are mentally ill. Just as a body would surely become sick unto death if all it did was lay back on its backside and eat sugar, so emotionally and psychologically, not to mention spiritually, the present post-adolescent culture is dying from pleasure, bored to death by the same old thing. And what is the same old thing? Abundance of food, abundance of idleness, and arrogant disregard for the poor and needy. They seek out constantly new ways to amuse themselves with no sense of right or wrong, only gratification. If you know Ezekiel chapter 16, you recognize that I am describing Ezekiel's reference to Sodom. I understand their mindset. I was their age once and was just as self-absorbed in some ways. I tell this story more than I used to because it just seems to keep coming up as uh, an important illustration. But I do understand their mindset. I, I do understand, though I, I don't empathize with every aspect of it, I empathize with the general self-absorbed, selfish foolishness because I lived in it. 
But during this early period of my Christian life, when my own sin seemed insurmountable, it it seemed insurmountable, and finding help seemed hopeless, a dead end, the Lord spoke a word to my heart that changed the whole direction of my life for good. Nobody would have seen the, the, the drama going on. It, it all happened very quietly inside the confines and privacy of my own mind and the whisper of the Holy Spirit in my mind. But I, I, I was riding in the car with a friend of mine, and uh, Barry McGuire's new album had just come out, To the Bride, 1976. And uh, my friend had it in his uh, yeah 8-track. I think he had an 8-track. I, I never would have had an 8-track. I hated 8-tracks. I couldn't understand the click that happened in the middle of the song. It just made me insane. So I didn't have an 8-track, but he did. And Barry was singing this song. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, leaving me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. Never a word, said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And in the midst of that song, the Holy Spirit spoke to me as clear as I've ever heard him. And he said to me, will you walk with me and trust me with the sorrows ahead? I hear you cry. I hear your pleading for, for help. Will you trust me through the process? Will you walk with me? And before we got to the restaurant we were heading to, a transaction had happened between me and the Lord that was absolutely life-transforming. As I simply said, yes, Lord. No, no lightning and thunder, no great manifestations of supernatural presence. Just a quiet, gentle conversation between Jesus and me. But I knew inside something had changed, something had taken a turn. And there were many, many heartaches. Most of them caused by my insistence on doing life my way on my terms. God's not interested in sorrow for sorrow's sake, for heaven's sakes. He is the overflowing fountain of all joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, as screw tape says about this statement. He says he's a hedonist at heart, Wormwood. He, he loves partying. All that suffering and stuff, that's more our, our, our territory. And yet, in order to give that joy, he must purge us from all that would ruin joy. And nothing ruins joy but sin. So in his faithfulness and love, he ruthlessly goes after the purging of sin from us so that our joy may be full. So don't waste your sorrows. May God in his mercy deliver us from all that would keep us from shedding tears. Not tears of worldly sorrow or resentment or rebellion that leads to death, but the tears of repentance that wash the windows of the soul. Please, Lord, break our hearts so that they can become truly healed. Teach us how not to waste our sorrows. In Jesus' name, and for his glory. And before we end our time together, let me just let me just ask you to stop here with me. What is hurting you right now? What is breaking your heart? 
You may have stuffed it down inside so that you don't feel it. And, and the reason you don't feel is because you've covered it over with the scab of living shallow. And what the Lord wants to do is break the outer shell. He wants to, he wants to get to the core of, of whatever the issue is. Holy Spirit, come. You see your children, the men, the women, the boys, the girls, those alone in their car, those listening in their kitchen, those uh, walking with their Walkman, uh, with their headphones. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come now and penetrate the outer shell and help them get in touch with whatever it is they have been hiding from. Father, I pray for a release of your spirit to break the outer shell and bring up the core pain and help us not hide from it anymore, whether it's bitterness or unforgiveness or a broken heart or a betrayed marriage or a, a lapse back into old sin patterns that we just can't look at anymore and we're so ashamed of it, we just can't bear to look at it. We think you're ashamed of us. We think you have turned from us. I'm asking you, Father, to come now by your Holy Spirit's presence in every one of us and awaken us to the fact that you are never disappointed in us because you've never had any illusions about us. We're the ones with the illusions and you're trying to disillusion us so you can heal and liberate us into our true self. Father, I pray for any person now who has just lost the ability to hope and they've misinterpreted the sorrows they've been passing through as either punishments, which they never are, or uh, just the fact that God doesn't care. He's just left me to myself. And that's never true either. What you're always after is this breaking process that can bring us into our true self. Let there be deaths and resurrections all across the, the planet for every place where this message is being heard. Heal your people. Raise us up. Restore us. Bring us into our true self. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And where we have wasted our sorrows, help us go back and retrieve that wood, hay, and stubble. And maybe in intercession and a clearer mindset, by humbly repenting of our former behavior and attitude, we can actually spin the wood, hay, and stubble into gold. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.